the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 422 for Sunday, October 28th. Happy Halloween 2012. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in your cool stuff found. We provide some answers to the questions, some tips and cool stuff found of our own. And we all try to learn a little something new about the Mac here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in <laughs> disaster prone Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. And uh, here in another part of Durham, New Hampshire, uh, at least before we blow away tomorrow, is uh, Pilot Pete. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to. Uh, we've got two show two shows in a row. We've got yeah. Pilot Pete back with us. <laughs> there must be a disaster hit uh, our way. Then. <laughs> there is. Yeah, that's right. Sorry about my my cracking of my throat again in the uh, in the intro there, John. The good news is I actually got my throat scoped on Friday. They stuck a thing down my nose. Believe it or not, and, camera. Uh, yeah. Well, no, a, a fiber optic scope, um, big long scope. They numbed my throat and nose, obviously first. Okay. Was it for visual inspection yes. of your? Um, yeah. uh, uh, okay. The the area of at least whatever in the right of, my, of my vocal cords and uh, and of course my big concern was that I had developed uh, what they call singers nodules or calluses on my on my throat. The good news is I did not. Um, turns out I have acid reflux. And, and I told them, I have no symptoms of this. And they said, yes, you do. Your throat. <laughs> Your voice right. is, is going to crap on yeah, you. <laughs> that's it. So uh, so they, I'm on a simple regimen of, of, uh, of stuff. That's it. Yeah, uh, something a little stronger than that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, hopefully. Oh, they, say, they say six weeks and this problem usually clears itself up. So. All right. Yeah. So hopefully that's good news. It's definitely good news that I don't have the, the calluses, the singer's nodules. That means surgery and often mean surgery and that's terrible so anyway so i just need to deal with this raspiness that probably has been going on about six months now that i think about it but uh but we'll deal with it so you know i i before i did that this week john though i was out west again for the so was i that's right for the <laughs> apple event and pete was out there with me as we discussed last week we wound up staying in the same hotel and everything totally coincidental but uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go figure. And so, you live to tell the tale well, and yeah, be up right. in time for the event. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it worked out okay. It worked out okay. Um, but uh so there were a lot of things announced. Obviously the the new uh iPad mini, the new I, iPad fourth generation was announced, the new MacBook Pro 13 inch, which I'm curious to hear your take on, John. The new iMac was announced and uh and the new Mac mini was announced so uh it was you know like drinking from a fire hose again doing the uh doing the coverage but it was uh it was good stuff so i, I and we can talk well i'm happy to answer any questions john that you might have about uh about any of the things that that i saw but uh but what i really want to talk about for the for this show is fusion drive i, I assume you read uh, at least some or perhaps a lot about fusion drive john um, yes, I read your coverage and, and others, and, and from what I can gather, it is a, and, and I guess this is, could use clarification, so it's a hybrid mechanical and SSD mechanism. Well, 
Yeah. So it's it's um, at the very highest level. It's using those two technologies in some intelligent way, I would hope. Right. The, the best way to approach this, I think, is probably the way that I assume Apple approached it up until Tuesday. If you bought an iMac uh, and I have one of these, uh, you could buy it with both an SSD in it or a flash drive. Um, probably best not to call it an SSD because it's not configured physically like an SSD, but you get it with a flash drive and with a mechanical drive. And that's what I got. But when I got mine, as I expected, the flash drive is what had everything on it, all the system and, you know, all my apps and my documents and all that stuff. And that was my main drive. And then this extra mechanical drive was 100% empty. Now I expected that I knew what to do and I managed the, the space myself. I choose to put my music library and my iPhoto library on this, on the mechanical drive and I keep the other stuff on on the uh, on the SSD and it works out great. But I think Apple's uh, but, you know, we got a lot of questions over the last year about people that said, hey, look, I've got this exact same setup. How do you recommend I manage it? And of course, we've talked a lot about that, but Apple didn't want people to have to ask that question. Apple wanted people to be able to just get a setup like this and have it work magically. And that's what Fusion Drive is. So it's the same uh, set up that the the drives are separate in the system. You can replace them one by one. Um, and when you do, you can rebuild what they call fusion drive. If you look in disk utility, it shows two drives, but in the finder uh, and to applications and everything else, it displays one, what I'll call logical volume. Right. And, and it is up to the system to move things. It is not a cache. Uh, the stuff isn't stored in both places. It is either on the SSD or on the spindle, but not in both. And it moves things back and forth. And uh, depending on what it, what it thinks you need, the good news is it can be intelligent about it using whatever algorithms um, and calculations Apple has just has decided. And and that's a good thing. Cause you know, if it was being dumb about it, it would, every time you read a file, it would say, well, that's a new, that's a file that, the person, you know, the user wants. So let's go ahead and keep it on the, on the, on the fast drive. But of course, every time you do a backup, it would see that you read all your files and it would try to move everything to the flash drive. And that might not be the most efficient uh, thing. So I got, a, I got a question about that. Do you know where the bulk of that work is being done? Is there like a firmware on the drive doing this or is it in the mountain lion uh, operating system? It's in OS 10 itself. Okay. It's happening. All, yeah. All but, in the OS. hundred percent. Both mountain lion, mountain lion. And, and thereafter, I guess. Uh, yeah, cool. well, in lion or snow leopard. Uh, no. And in fact, Apple made it clear that it will only work on the new machine. So even though okay, I have I physically the right setup on my iMac, it isn't going to work at this point. It's not going to work. Yeah. That, that may change. Hey Dave, you need a new computer, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's an excuse. That's right. So it's cool stuff though, cool. John, don't you think? Yeah. I, I I think they were inspired by what um by what you were doing uh, what's been uh, what the momentous XT is doing right it's like that on a whole other level that's right right I I understand they're moving and actually I think it's very interesting they're moving the smarts it would seem to me into the OS rather than the drive itself so that's a great way to put it yep and actually that's probably a better place to do it because I've noticed although the uh, the XT definitely is faster than mechanical drive. Um, yeah, sometimes I, I, I guess it just doesn't make the right guess. So the OS being involved. 
really helps. But do you think oh, it's exactly. a more robust flash drive, though? I mean, because like no. everything is getting written to that drive. Isn't it going to wear it out faster? What's the? That's actually a really good point. Um, I, and I did write an article up about this. The the flash drive, everything is written to flash to make writes faster. And then stuff that should be offloaded uh, to the mechanical drive is at a later time. Um, well, you know, to me, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Because everything's getting written to your flash drive anyway, if that's where you're writing everything, you know, it's I mean, yes, flash drives do have that that, uh, you know, uh, maximum write cycles. But um, it's it, you know, we haven't been using flash drives long enough to really get a feel for what that actually means. Uh, But I guess there are people out there with errors that have had flash drives for couple years, three years now. and uh, Yeah, maybe even four. Yeah. yeah. And no issues. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a, this huge issue. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. It's good stuff. I mean, I think Fusion Drive is going to be a big deal. I, I like it because it, you know, it allows people to get the speed of an SSD, not worry about the headache of managing it and not have to pay for a 768 gigabyte SSD drive that would totally break the bank. Any more thoughts on that, John? None. All right. Well, let's move to uh, <laughs> let's move to Randy, shall we? Surely, surely. All right, and stop calling me Shirley. Uh, <laughs> Rand, I had to get the airplane joke in. Randy writes: At one point, I messed up and created a signature which keeps appearing on my iPhone and iPad. If I do not touch the X next to it, it will put the bad signature into my email or document. How do I get rid of the autocorrect mistakes we have all made in iOS six? There must be a way to get rid of this and retrain the autocorrect or suggestion mode, but I don't know how. So, yeah, this can this can definitely be annoying. Um, and there is a way to reset it, but there is not a way to granularly remove things from it. So you have to wipe out all of it. And the way you do it is on your iOS device. You go into settings, general reset and then reset keyboard dictionary and then click reset dictionary and that'll do it. Um, and, and that's it. It's uh, but, but it wipes out all your autocorrect stuff. So you are starting over uh, and it would be nice if you could, but you couldn't. So at least, well, not, not maybe now. you can, Oh, this like will the be way the, you think. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I do, sir. I know it's good. <laughs> the only thing I thought I'd mention is that there is a utility though. Proceed with caution, but, but the one that I found, which at the very least will give you an understanding of what is stored where on your iPhone is I explore. Okay. And what I could suggest now in this case, I don't think it applies because it gives you a limited or at least the free version. I think the, uh, I think they have a pay option, which gives you even more insight into what's stored on the iPhone. It's conceivable to me that that's stored in a P list file somewhere or some sort of little database file. I'm sure it is. That, yeah, yeah, it would stand and a tool reason. like this. I, I just wanted to mention the tool because it is, uh, and I'm going to mention another, uh, assuming we get to another question, another iPhone tool that I think is very cool. So this one is one that I've used in the past, just uh, if anything, to get an understanding of how it lays things out, which oddly enough is not very different from <laughs> the way the Mac lays things out. And that, yeah, there are plist files and database, you know, I guess SQL Lite or SQL Server database files and, and things like that. Though I think you have to tread much more carefully. <laughs> well, no, probably as carefully as you would on the Mac if you're starting to whack files. What could go wrong? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I, yeah, I mean, make a backup and then go, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yes. 
All right. Uh, you know, while we're on the uh, on the subject of, of iOS tips, there is one thing that I pointed out to someone this week that I have been doing for a long time. So long, in fact, that I didn't even think of it as a tip. But uh, but that's you know, that's that's the kind of stuff we're always trying to re unearth here. The things that, you know, you and I do automatically, John, that uh, that other people might just not, just might not know about. So uh, to get to the point. If you're scrolling through a long list, uh, and this is true in any app, it could be an Apple app, it could be a third-party app. If you've scrolled down and you want to get right up to the top of that uh, list, or even a web page, if you're you know on Safari and you you've scrolled all the way down, if you want to get back up to the top, tap the time at in the uh, in the you know in the header bar there, and it will immediately roll you all the way back up to the top really handy in your you know like twitter apps or your facebook type apps or like i said web pages with big long lists and everything if you've scrolled yourself all the way down tap the top and man brings you right back up so good stuff is that one that you knew john had you had you been hip to that no oh see there you go you know i don't think i knew it either but though i've done it okay and gone Damn, what just happened? Right, right. <laughs> so that makes sense now. Now mm-hmm. I know what happened. Yeah. Yep. That's how I I got what I'm not happy about, though. So actually. Go. Oh, boy. Well, it's it's related to the iDevice and related to what it can do and what it cannot do. So okay. I'll, I'll just toss it out here. Yeah, so go. I got a new machine at work, a Dell, which it's a nice Dell. Okay. It's got an i5. It, uh, <laughs> so don't pick on the Dell. But it has Crater. Bluetooth. And so I started playing around with the Bluetooth as far as how much. Uh, on another computer, not a Mac, could it see from the iDevice? And the thing that made me sad is that in the past, I've had phones that would allow you to do file transfer, right? Right. Directly from the phone. Now, of course, there, there are several solutions that have uh, I, iDevice clients, So, but, but it still annoyed me that, that it was disabled. But the cool thing was the software installed or the Bluetooth software on the Dell said, oh, by the way, you want me to stream the songs you have on here? I'm like, okay, well, I guess, you know, it, it is an iPhone and, you know, in a sense, a, a big uh, uh, iPod with a phone in it. So why not let it play music? But it's funny in their choice of what Bluetooth protocols to allow to communicate with the other world. They're like, play music? Sure. Transfer files to the file system? Now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much you've done with Blue, uh, uh, either of you guys, uh, with Bluetooth or... You know, because I go, I know we talked about the docks and stuff like that. I mean, do you guys get your, you know, if you are bringing your device in the car and you want to interact with it, are you using the dock? Are you using Bluetooth? What what, what do you guys do? I I, I just it, mentioned it because I, I just got back into a machine and started investigating. Well, what does it see when it looks at other devices? Um. So I, yeah, I, I've used Bluetooth in the car with my, with my iPhone. Um. I assume that's what you're that's what you're asking here. Not with the Mac, right? To stream music. Yeah. Yeah, I do it to stream music. And it it's OK. It's oh, good. Cool. But but it's it's weird, at least the, the way the integration works in my car with with uh, Bluetooth. If I plug in so a USB connection, I can browse all my playlists from the car's interface and choose what I want to listen to. And then when I play it, it comes up and it shows the album art and all of that stuff. If I do it with Bluetooth, which is far more convenient because I don't have to plug it in, uh, I get great sound. I get the album art. I can see what song is playing and I can choose to go to the next song or the previous song or back to the beginning of the current song. But I cannot see what's, what else is in the rest of the playlist and I can't navigate my other playlists. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a limitation of my vehicle or of, um, you know, or of the way the, the iOS. I, I'd guess it was the vehicle. Cause I, I've got the Honda with that nav package and the Bluetooth and all that. And all that, all the Bluetooth is in there is, uh, for uh, telephone calls and it, it takes my phone book over, right. it takes my entire contact list over. But if I want to listen to music, I have to do it through the headphone jack and oh. the aux port. Right. Yeah. But, no, my car does the, the phone and the yeah, other thing, but I'm it won't just, do, I can't Bluetooth stream. Right. I, I'm just wondering if, uh, if if the limitation, if other cars could, in fact, see the playlist, uh, but oh, I see what you're saying, yeah, yeah, but I don't. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Mine can't. Right, right. Uh, you know, to uh, to to drop back one uh, one question, Dan, and and I would like to welcome and say hello to everyone in the chat room. As many of you know, we keep a chat room going uh, when we record the show, and we also stream it live. So that's always at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. And you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook to find out when that happens. But it's typically on Sundays, either at about 9 p.m. at night or uh, about 10 a.m. in the morning, both Eastern time. So it'll either be Eastern Daylight or Eastern Standard, depending on where we are in the calendar. Uh, Dan in the chat room asks, uh, related to the autocorrect issue we were talking about, is there a way to cancel the autocorrect suggestion aside from tapping on that tiny little X? And there is uh, the, the only way I've found is to hit the delete key and, and deal with it. And that may be faster because your hands are, or your thumbs or your fingers are in keyboard land as opposed to up on the, on yeah, the I've screen. noticed once you back up one letter yeah. and then start typing again, it, it quits offering for that. The rest you, of that word usually quits offering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless you come up with a new word for it. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, what else do we have here, John? Uh, I guess it's time to talk quickly about JP and then and then it's on to Rick. JP, yes. J- yeah. JP okay. asked uh, in in the midst of troubleshooting something else, he he did a nuke and pave uh, on his drive and then restored from um, a, a clone and and he's everything's working right. He says uh, upon boot, he gets a the the kind of the typical slash through the circle icon. It indicates that it can't find a drive. Uh, and then after, you know, a short amount of time, the machine boots up like it normally would. And so JP's question is, how do I get rid of this slash through the circle? It's somewhat cosmetic, but obviously indicative of something not being right or the same. And to me, typically the slash, uh, the circle with the slash through it means that it can't find a boot drive, which is telling me that, it can't find a boot drive initially, and then eventually it is finding a boot drive as your drive comes online and spins up, and then off it goes. In the old days, and I'm assuming this is the same thing now, uh, it was that you did not, if you did not have a startup disk set, the system would, would not wait, if, or, or a better way to say this is, if you do have a startup disk set, the system will wait longer for that disk to come online. If you don't have it set, it kind of, you know, immediately says, hey, I don't see any boot disk. And it sort of keeps looking and looking and looking. And then finally something comes online and says, all right, that's the first one I found. I'm going to go ahead and boot from that. So the way to solve it is once you've booted up, go into system preferences, startup disk and just click on your startup disk. It's probably not highlighted at the moment uh, and highlighting it will solve. I think will solve that circle with the slash through it. I don't I can't replicate it on my end. So it's hard to hard to say for sure. But uh but typically that doesn't. So there's your 
another quick tip of the week. But I'm going to give a quicker tip. Well, not yeah. quicker, I'm sorry. No, it's not going to be quicker, but it'll be deeper. All right. More detailed. So yeah, go. the other thing you may want to try in this case. Now, Dave, I'm not sure if this sets this as the start default startup volume. But of course, well, not of course, because you may not know this. So when you start up the machine, if you hold down option, that activates in pretty much any modern Mac, what's known as the startup manager. And that will also show you eventually. Um, to your point, Dave, is you may want to sit on the screen for a while and see what happens. This could, this is actually a tool that could help maybe diagnose yeah. what the heck's going on, right? Yeah, very it's good gonna point. Show you bef- it's going to show you as soon as possible after you start your Mac up what devices it thinks are bootable. And uh, you can either sit there and click on one or uh, now I don't believe it sets it. I'm not sure. No, it's an article it, to a knowledge base. It doesn't. So it's a one time thing. Yeah, oh, right. Okay. Which is which is good, because if you if you have a startup disk set and you want to force it to start from another one, you do that and it doesn't change the, the default for the for the machine. Yeah. OK, yeah. so between those two, I think. Yeah. That's good stuff, Next. man. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we 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 did a lot of pre-show stuff here, John, and I never asked you, do you do you have I think you do have an answer for this question uh, that Rick asked. Is that right? Well, for the the preference setting part, yes. Yeah. All right. So go ahead and uh, and read that. You want me to read it and find it here? <laughs> go and I'll find the solution. Okay. Yeah, go. Sounds good. Um, he says in Mountain Lion, Rick says, uh, when I am editing a new message in Mail app and I change focus to another app like the Finder and then return to editing the message in Mail app, the cursor disappears. You can still edit the message. But this is a problem in moving to a different point in the message. I do not know where I actually am. Any thoughts about uh, about this one, John? Or is that oh. or that's not that's not the part you were going to answer, did you? That, I, I, I reversed that. I'll answer this part. You'll answer the other part. How's that sound? Splendid. OK, so as far as the cursor <laughs> thing, um, I have seen this before. I don't see it as often as you do, Rick. Command shift four is my solution for this. And and that sounds a little strange, but what Command Shift 4 does is it puts you into, it brings the crosshairs up on the screen, or it should bring the crosshairs up on the screen, to let you do a selective screenshot where you can take a screenshot of the area of the screen. Uh, if you are in that mode and you click the mouse and, you know, and drag and let go, it will take that screenshot. If you hit escape, it will bail you out of that mode and put you back where you were. So to restore that cursor, Command Shift 4, and then escape should bring your cursor back um, and allow you to click and, and, and see what you're doing. I, otherwise I, and, and I realize that's the mouse cursor and not the insertion point cursor, but they, it seems to be related when they, when one disappears for me, they both disappear. Um, so, and, and if that's, if that if failing that I would start up in safe mode because you may have safe mode with the shift key down, you may have a, um, third party add on that's doing something funky with the cursor. And that would be a, a good way to test it. Cause that will start you up without it. So, so that's that. His other question was, uh, let me see. Let me find it here. He says, um, in show four nineteen, you had, a tip saying to set up set up a shortcut for showing Launchpad and Mountain Lion so that you could launch apps that way uh, in keyboard settings. 
John could not change this setting. And you know what? I can't either, says Rick. John, did you find a way around this? Yes. And it's really annoying. <laughs> I did. So the first was, oh, I forget the plist file. We mentioned it in the episode in question, but there is a, a keyboard shortcut plist file. Possibly. Okay. Uh, but here's what I found <laughs> that actually fixed it. So going to, again, uh, system preferences, hardware, keyboard, then keyboard shortcuts. You will see. Then on the left, you click on a launch pad and dock. And we were talking about, of course, uh, how Launchpad is, is really cool and we want to make a shortcut. So clicking on that, I couldn't set it, Dave. Here's what fixed it. I clicked on Show Launchpad, and then there is a button in the lower right. Kind of in the middle, not the total lower right, but the lower uh, middle right. Restore defaults. I clicked on that, then clicked on the checkbox. Then, all of a sudden, magically, the field to the right of Show Launchpad in that list allowed me to type things into it. Oh. So Isn't that interesting? I, I'm, I'm, I'm always nervous clicking. Yeah, it was funny. Maybe uh, the only thing I can speculate is that I may not have deleted the proper plist file or may not have done a, I may have done just a logout and maybe not a restart. So maybe it didn't totally get flushed, but getting rid of the plist file didn't work for me the first time around. Okay. Whereas this did restore defaults so i don't know if it was a permissions thing with the plist file or, or what's going on here but yeah. it worked for me. so okay. restore defaults again makes me nervous because <laughs> on this screen it was fine because it's not impacting too many things but in a lot of cases i don't want to do that because you could undo you know hours of fine tuning of whatever it is so right yeah well that's the thing is right when you restore defaults especially to geeks like like us here in our here, of course, you and me, but also our community here, uh, it blows away any customizations you've made. <laughs> that that can be a lot, especially if you don't log every customization you make. You just sort of make them on the fly. Like I know, like I do, and I'm sure like you do, too, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, Jim, uh, while we're talking about questions brought up from different shows, Jim had. Hey, uh, Jim had an interesting tip. He said, uh, uh, let me find where it is. He says in uh, show 421, you mentioned how to find logs on your iPhone OS by going to settings general about and then diagnostics and usage. He said, did you also know that you can find these logs and more in the console app on your Mac if you sync to it? And uh, and the logs are in home library logs and either in crash reporter or mobile device. And that's where you'll find a lot of those logs. And then he followed up and he said something even cooler. He says, if you want to get really geeky, you can use Xcode, which is Apple's development uh, environment, but you can download it for free and you can use it and you don't have to be a developer to do so. Uh, you can uh, use Xcode and see exactly what your iPhone is doing. There is a tool called instruments in Xcode launching that gives you uh, all kinds of things. And it has an activity monitor in there and you can see in real time what's happening on the CPU. And it also has an energy diagnostics tab. And that will really give you the nuts and bolts of what your iPhone is doing. The stuff that Apple hides so eloquently from casual users. When you choose activity monitor, uh, you can press the record button to analyze and it's all in real time. 
and you can see exactly what process is hogging the CPU. CPU. Also, when you use the energy diagnostics, you will get to see what process is using how much power when it's not on in the CPU amount, etc., etc. And then he says, uh, one more thing. There is an option to actually import the energy diagnostics directly from the device for the times when it wasn't connected to Xcode. Uh, this and, and by connecting to Xcode, you just do a USB cable connection like you would if, if you were syncing to iTunes the old way. Uh, this will show you all the history of the phone over a period of time. And if you hold down the mouse button over the timeline, over the energy stuff, and move a little, you'll see a contextual pop-up over the data displayed. Very, very geeky. And it, uh, it is in, if you run instruments and connect an iDevice, go to the file menu, there is the import energy diagnostics from device um, selection there. And that's, that's what it'll do. So that's cool stuff. That I'm definitely going to start messing with that because I, I obsess over what might or might not be running in the background and what it's doing to me. So awesome. Then have I got a tool for you, Dave? All right. And it's from one of our favorite companies, Apple. Hey, and it's called iPhone configuration utility 3.5. Okay. At least that's the current version. And this is a utility that actually I got familiar with when I was doing uh, enterprise development work. And actually I'm probably going to be doing that again on enterprise level, which, you know, involves a certain agreement with Apple and sure, but also tools that let you provision devices and, and stuff that really doesn't mean a lot to an individual user, but means something to an enterprise user, either deploying an iDevice in an enterprise or managing developers or both. So, but they have something which you don't have to be a developer to download called iPhone configuration utility. Um, and the reason I want to mention that because it, it does uh, hinge into the, the issue here of what is my device doing? And the one thing I like about it, so it does, in addition to letting you view all the nitty gritty data, like the serial number, the UDID, which I guess is the identifier, all, all this low level stuff, um, configuration profiles, which again means something in the enterprise world, but uh, may mean something outside of it. I think it's mostly certificates and stuff. Right. Uh, it lists the apps, but the big thing is that this utility lets you view the console of the iPhone. <laughs> and it's a separate tab in this utility, and it's pretty much looks like the console of OS X because, oh, that's right. OS, uh, uh, iOS is, well, well, in a sense, it's OS X, right? A subset. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or a slice, yeah. a slice of it, or maybe... I don't know if it's a, entirely a subset. I think they have their own features that I that, that uh, Mac OS doesn't. But but it shows you a console thing, and you'll see you know kernel and log. Uh, but you'll see different processes. So some of them will be unfamiliar because you don't necessarily always see them on your Mac. Sure. But um, in addition to I'm looking right now, I see things from kernel, but I th- see things from processes that are definitely not uh, on the Mac. Yeah. So, but a good tool and. And the price is right. And if you manage an enterprise, then you'll definitely use it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, while we're on this, let's uh, let's hear what Larry has to say on the uh, on the subject of pruning apps off of iOS. Hey, guys, I was just listening to 421 and uh, you mentioned about pruning your i thing, iPod, iPhone, iPad, whatever. Um and hey, I, I, <laughs> I discovered a good way of pruning it, um, and it was kind of sort of unintentional, but I was having problems with conflicting apps, um, and so they recommended doing the, you know, complete reset and doing all that kind of stuff, and so I did it, and then I said, okay, you know, I'm having problems with conflicting apps, let me just put the one app on here that I need 
that I know I'm having a problem with. And let me see if I have the problem. Well, I was still having a problem with it. So um, that led to other things. But regardless, and since then, I've only been adding apps that I would need, you know, like, oh, here, I want to get a coupon. Oh, I don't have coupon on my phone. Let me go put coupon on, and then I put it on. So it's really interesting because I've really got kind of a skeleton crew on my phone now, but uh, it's doing the trick, and as I need things, I will add them. But, you know, I'm one of those kind of guys that just adds things as I see them, and, hey, it's free, let me have it. So anyhow, um, thank you much, and um, take care. Bye. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, that's uh, that's my problem, too, is I just constantly add things and I don't think about it. But but your advice is is sound. Yeah. Just only add the stuff that you need. And, and uh, I think I'd add to that. Just, you know, you got to if if you want to keep it running clean and not run into the issue I talked about uh, running into. You've got to prune stuff that you don't use. It's like cleaning out your garage. It's so it hard out. to do, though, man. I know it is. Because <laughs> I find yeah. that screwdriver that I haven't used in four years, and I think, but, you know, I... As soon as I, I throw it away, I'm going to need I it I might tomorrow. need this. Yeah. And that's the thing. Of course, you can always re-download onto the iPhone. Yeah. But if I don't have it on there, and I'm in a mission-critical situation, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, and you're not and, connected. That's right. <laughs> I know this is this is the OCD, you know. It's, it's, it's just how. But it goes. also, I mean, you just gotta look where we live. I mean, do you really have a situation that requires such no control? No, no, of course. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a grand scheme of things. <laughs> yes, it's a matter of convenience. You know, yeah. it's like I, I wanted to look up the hurricane, right? And so I looked, and in my group of weather apps, I have Canecast, which is awesome. And it's fantastic for, you know, it's a single purpose app. Once or twice a year. Yeah. It cost me 99 cents, but I just had to tap it. It, Otherwise, I would have had to go to the app store, go to the, you know, list of apps that are not on my iPhone and scroll through. And which hurricane app did I buy? You know, there's that whole process. And and it's uh, the beauty of folders. Yeah, but you apparently, know. you know, is Canecast yeah. now running in the background all the time checking my location? It might be. Yeah, it could well be. I don't know, you know, and so that's that's where I start to get, uh, you know. Yeah. Huh. That's C- where it starts to get other to be a problem. Were. What's that? I said certainly other apps. Well, that's right. At one point. You yeah, know. you just, you don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so there you go. That's, you know, that's it. But Canecast is cool. So for those of you uh, tracking the hurricane, we'll, we'll put a link to... Uh, to that in the show notes it's handy and you know like i said it's handy to just keep around forever so uh all right so let's move to jeff jeff has a uh, a real question here he yeah. says i've recently replaced my old linksys mac uh, my linksys cable modem and wireless router with a new doxis 3 cable modem and my fiance's time capsule which is used now as the main wireless router for the house as 802.11n in 5 gigahertz mode. In my house, uh, the new speeds from my internet provider are fast on every device, two iPhone 5s and my fiance's MacBook Pro. Since I have an iMac at my desk, it's wired. I live in a three-story townhouse, and the internet connection and wireless router are on the third floor uh, at the front of the house. Anywhere in the house, I have always, prior and after the change, uh, had access. Prior to the change, I was able to get a Wi-Fi signal out to my backyard about 15 to 20 feet on my iPhone 4. On my iPhone 5, however, now I can only get to the back door, and once through the door, I lose my signal. 
I've always thought that 802.11n had more range than 802.11g. Am I correct on this? And is using the 5 gigahertz band reducing the Wi-Fi signal? Number two, I've also been toying with the idea of getting an Apple Airport Extreme, turning that into the main wireless router for the house uh, and moving the time capsule to the back side of the house to extend the wireless network and to make an older printer on the same side wireless. Is that a good idea? Will this help get more wireless signal outside the back of my house? So, okay. I've got an answer. I, I have lots of answers. Yeah, no. He's, he's wait, I got some fiance's. too. Hold on, wait, he's me, me, me. His fiance's router. She's got a tighter leash on him. Keeping him closer in. That's right. Got to get your own router, man. <laughs> what? It's okay. good to have you here. Oh, sorry. I was I expect, I, I would have expected that from me said. if it wasn't you. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's right. Uh, so, John, okay. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got some thoughts on this. So, run with it. Well, my only question here, so I guess number one, I'm going to assume that the old unit is not one of the dual radio or dual transmitter units because the newer ones have that, correct? I, 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 You're talking about the time know, capsule? Yes, I'm talking about the time capsule and that there are time capsules or uh, airport extremes that have more than one radio. Correct. In this yeah. case, it sounds like what he's doing is picking what appears to be the best common protocol among whatever wants to connect to it. I would agree with that. So to me, one thing, and it sounds like what, what, what he's trying to do here in lieu of having a unit that can do that. And someday, <laughs> you know me, but someday I'll get, I mean, the next uh, airport extreme I get, will have two radios. Right. But my understanding, and actually the, the one that I have now s- pretends to do it, but I don't think it really does in that it's two separate radios though. I think it's, it can let me set up two separate SSIDs. So maybe it does do it the same way that Apple does. But so my understand. So one way to solve this problem is to have two. And I think that's what he's suggesting because the unit that he has probably can't be made into two radios because if it could, to me, that would be one of the solutions here. Let's answer right? his question, though, about five gigahertz versus 2.4 gigahertz. Because oh. his previous well, I'm with router. you on that one, but you go. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, five gigahertz. His question was, and he was using 2.4 prior, uh, is uh, 5 gigahertz reducing the Wi-Fi signal? And in most cases, yes, the range of your Wi-Fi signal will be far less with a 5 gigahertz uh, radio versus 2.4. However, at close range, the speeds may be faster with five gigahertz. And of course, if yes. you have 2.4 interference or anything, obviously using five will get you away from that. So, but in, for most cases, especially what you're talking about here, you want to use 2.4. There's all, you know, almost no question, unless like my good friend says, you can do both. And then of course do both and use whatever works for, for your environment. Mr. And, Mr. Yeah, Pilot. I, I got a quick question. I just want to verify that I understand this right as well. Uh, the, the you can use the N protocol in either 2.4 or 5 gigahertz, but you can't use the G protocol in 5 gigahertz. That that's an excellent point. Yeah, N yeah. is not N yeah. is N, N is N the is the the either. one that can go both. Yeah. yeah, and that's a very good question because it it's confusing. A lot of people equate N with 5 gigahertz, and it's true you can use it with 5 gigahertz, but you also can use it with 2.4. Right. And and to answer the first part of your first question, yes. N is better than G um, because it is faster. And so it's better for actually many other reasons, but because it's faster, 
even as you're getting to the edge of the range, you will get more range because you have more speed uh, at any at any given point than you would yeah. with. Uh, and if you have an item only using G on your 2.4, that will slow all your 2.4 down to G speeds, right? Not down to G speeds. Oh, but okay. It will force them to fragment their packets more. Gotcha. So it okay. will slow it down, but not all the way down to G oh, speeds. Okay. Okay. Yes, yeah, just the same as it was with G versus B. It doesn't slow gotcha. everybody down to B, but it does cause that packet packet packet. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, apparently. Whoa. <laughs> Did you like that, now, John? But he, but he, that was awesome. <laughs> so one thing I want to add to this is that it, there was mention of 802.11a. Well, well only in that it, only in that his original router had the capability of doing it, but he wasn't right. using it. And the only thing I mentioned is that you may want to consider a as an option if, as, as we've talked about. Because it's an option, all right? Yeah, but why in We've the world? got to offer people options. No, no, no. But why in the world would you want to use A? A is 5 gigahertz only and um, and 54 megabits maximum. There's no reason you'd want to use A because in today's world. Option. Because it's an option. Be quiet. <laughs> okay. We're trying, just, to, we're trying to tell people how to solve problems. Yeah, but so, A, A is nothing, like the... What if, what if nothing else in the world worked except... 802.11a. You deny that to people, Dave. Come on. Well, if, if they. OK, so no, if they have a first first generation MacBook Pro, it will have a five gigahertz radio in it that does not do N, but does do A. And so, yes, you can do A um, and you can do it on the same radio that's doing that's serving N. But A is slowed down to, to it. And A is really short range, like really, really short range. It's just a bad idea with N out there. So you know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to open the door. If you want yeah. to close it, that's fine. Yeah, it was probably should have been left closed. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, all right. So his second question is sort of uh, a recurring theme. It seems with, uh, with questions here, adding another router, does it make sense to do this? And then, you know, how to extend it uh, again? You know, I, I know we're like broken records here, but, don't try to use the wireless extension stuff in, in in every practical scenario I've ever tried. And I think the same is true with you, John. It has not actually extended the range, even though it might act like it, it thinks it is. The best way to extend the range is to connect the routers with a hardwired cable. Ethernet is the best if you can do it, but probably you can't if your house is already built. Uh, so you use power line. And that works in most, but unfortunately not all houses. So I threw some fiber optic cable out of one window and it comes in another and it's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but the neighbors just love that. These evening shows sometimes get off They're, the chain. Do you hang Christmas lights from that too, John? Yeah, that cable? That's, <laughs> that's what it is. That's fiber optics, <laughs> right? Go, yeah. That's, I thought that was the same thing. All right. Um, Where? Dare we go to Ian, my friend? Oh, regarding network speeds. Yeah, I, I think you know. I I think if I if I just it lets it lets you talk about your router again, which you love to do. So you know. <laughs> okay, Ian writes. Hi guys, our broadband supplier provides a free modem router wireless access point that is limited to 100 base T on the Ethernet port and 802.11G on the wireless. I often transfer large files between computers, and so 
I'm after gigabit LAN and N-speed wireless. If I were to purchase an Airport Extreme and put it in bridge mode, would my network speeds be limited by the existing router? If so, can you please advise as to what the best way to set up my network is? And I think what he uh, stated is <laughs> the right way to do it. And that is very similar to what I have here because I, I was surprised to run into this, Dave, when I changed my setup here to all um, inexpensive. And, and it's a little experiment. It's pretty successful. I'll uh, get into the bad parts here. But I'm in this similar situation in that I have a connection coming from my cable modem, which is actually 100 megabits, into the wireless router, which is also 100 megabits, and then to a gigabit switch. I think what he's looking for is inter-device speed here. So the, the thing is, the way you're setting up is, is the right way to do it. And that one device is only going to be limited to 100 megabits, and the other will be, uh, because it has gigabit ports in it, you will be able to transfer the files uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And 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 I think bridge mode is the abs, absolutely the right answer. Unfortunately, he is stuck with uh, his cable modem and being married in hardware to a router uh, and best to only have one router managing the IP addresses and, and all of that for the network. So by putting the airport extreme or whatever other router he chooses to buy into bridge mode, then that will allow him to do his uh, Ethernet switch at. Uh, gigabit ethernet and also to do 802.11n right there in the in the same device if he needs more ports he could do what you're doing john and add another gigabit switch to it yeah i guess the only thing that is going to be relevant now and uh maybe not in the future but pretty much in the u.s here but nobody is offering a service that i think would saturate a hundred megabit connection dave but that's not true i can get it from comcast Okay. All right. That's the limit of what my provider offers. They offer a 101 megabit per second downstream. Yeah. So that's faster than a hundred. Yeah. And I think we can get 105 here. So it's, oh. yeah, the time is here. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay. So I guess the thing to think about then, uh, so I guess the point here is if you're going to be getting a router, make sure that if, if at all possible, all the ports are greater than a hundred because we've, we're almost there. Well, <laughs> Though I still know from talking to people, I mean, you know, you and I tweet and email with, you know, people all over the country and not everybody has access to megabits per second. Right. Right. I hate to assume that because it's, it's not true. I mean, I, uh, and if anybody's using a modem, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's so I'm sure there's people still using dial up. I mean, there's there's places where that's the best connection you're going to get. My my cousin, he lives not too, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, not that far from me. He lives just across the Vermont border uh, from New Hampshire, and he's got he can't get DSL to his house. He can't get a cable modem to his house. Uh, he has a satellite connection, but, you know, it's a it's a you know, it's probably got uh, almost a second, maybe eight, nine hundred milliseconds worth of latency on it. And so he's mm. he's toyed with the idea going back to a dial up connection for his like normal email checking and terminal, you know, SSHing into his, uh, he works on, on machines all the time. So, you know, to get huh. in, just to have a lower latency connection. Yeah. Which wow. is, yeah. You see, where'd they leave off? 33, six was 33, six pretty much where, no, we had, we had 56 K and I think we even had one fifteen in one direction. Really? Right. Yeah. But, but certainly 56 K modems. We had 57, six modems. Yeah. You had one. We both had them. 
And although it ain't cheap, I suppose the other, one of the other options to higher speed as opposed to dial-up is a little MyWi, you know, with a 4G or LTE, mm-hmm. but that assumes you have cell service in your I, in your area. He looked into or doing three, the Wi-Fi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that might actually be his best option, yeah. although it gets really expensive. Yeah. If you're using any significant amount of bandwidth in the house. Yeah, many, you know, five gigs, I think, is where the plans start. And those aren't too bad, but... No, but don't do crash plan, you know. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I know we've probably talked about it recently, but that um, I'm loving crash plan since I moved to it. And uh, it, it, it works. Uh, it's just, you know, it just works. Yeah. And I think you, I think actually we all use it now, don't we? You guys I, were I, ahead I of me on that. I, well, I, st- I started using it and yeah. then, and, but I, I had those other folks, the big C uh, extended my, uh, Comcast? My program. No, the, the Carbonite folks. Carbonite, when, that's right. When mm-hmm. I had that issue and I tried to back, restore everything and it restored thousands of files to my desktop. <laughs> and so they, uh, as a uh, compensation for the trouble I experienced, they extended me by about nine months. So that's going to end in the spring and then I'm going to have to move over to crash plan. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I was saying we could take Drobos and swap them and that'd be cool. Uh, Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got Crash Plan running on the disk station, and you could send you files to it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's good to go. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Let's see. Where are we here? Let me look. Eric actually had a uh, great little troubleshooting tip. You know, in the last show, we were talking about diagnosing network issues where there were those weird network speeds that were happening, and uh, and he said. Uh, my first impulse, like John, is I lean it to it being the iMac that uh, that this particular listener had. I was waiting to hear John advise removing the iPad iMac completely from the network to see if the problem went away. This is a common problem with Windows machines, but could apply to the iMac as well. Restarting or rebooting the iMac or rebooting the cable modem could be interrupting the bandwidth hogging programs or processes that may take several minutes to restart. If the iMac proves not to be the problem, make it the only device on the network, kill Wi-Fi, and unplug all other Ethernet cables. If this does not find the problem, I would start looking at the cable modem again. It's possible that the network itself is slowing him down and that it's just taking a few minutes for the system to start killing his speed. The fact that he started slowing down after an account change, something may be misconfigured on the other end. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you, Eric. Because uh, because removing the offending device or, or even just removing devices one by one from the network, if you're having sort of weird, um, hard to diagnose speed issues, you can have one machine that's just hogging up the network for whatever reason. It could be could be a, a program, like he says, or it could even be a bad Ethernet port, um, you know, causing all, all sorts of issues. So, yeah, great advice. I'm. I'm I am surprised that neither one of us came up with that. So what's thank the you, name Eric. of that network uh, speed diagnostic utility that uh, I use? I use a utility called iPerf. iPerf. That's but yeah. uh, but it's actually and you can do that and you can download iPerf for the Mac and you can compile it or you can download a pre-compiled one. But it, that's all based in the terminal. Someone has developed an, a utility that they call JPerf and uh, and JPerf is a Java front end to this iPerf. Um, uh, program and it it's actually way better because it creates graphs and and all kinds of things, but it also lets you run iperf without having to go to the terminal. And what iperf lets you do, you know, a lot of times you want to do speed te- uh, speed tests on your network, but the problem is if you try copying a file across your network, 
you're not going to get a good speed test because you're limited by the speed of the drive that you're reading from and the drive that you're writing to. So you're not actually testing the network. You're testing this whole system of devices together to see what they can do as a maximum. But if you just want to test the network link, you just need to send raw data across. That's not being read from anywhere and not being written anywhere. It's just essentially generated on the fly and thrown away when it gets to its destination. And that's what iPerf does. And it's awesome. It's really cool too to, to, uh, to set up an ethernet, you know, gigabit ethernet network and see like 980 megabytes a second, you know, blasting across it or <laughs> megabits, sorry, uh, blasting across it. It's, that's pretty awesome. Actually. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I get satisfaction out of that, especially when it's going from the house to the office. Cause that, you know, this cable underground and all that stuff. It means the lightning hasn't struck recently. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it means. <laughs> Yeah, you've used JPerf or iPerf, right, John? Yes, yeah. for testing the theoretical uh, tweaks to uh, Jumbo. Oh, right, gigabit right. Ethernet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can squeak that little extra ounce yeah. of performance. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> for some people, they're like, "Why do you bother? Just leave it alone." I know. Yeah. Well, you know, but, but that it, it can make a difference. It can. It can. All right. You know, Kevin, we talk a lot about um, using a VPN for security or or even uh, just making sure that you're on a VPN to get access to certain resources or uh, or, you know, lots of different things. And in short, a VPN is a tunnel. Um, and I know I'm, I'm being short about this, but uh, but it is a tunnel between your computer and another network that essentially allows your computer to act as though it is on the remote network as a local machine. And what that means is if let's say you're in a coffee shop in Washington, DC and the network that you're connecting to is in New York city, uh, you can access assuming the, assuming permissions are set up to do this. uh, If you connect to the VPN uh, from Washington, DC, And then you start browsing and you have it set to send all your traffic over the VPN. Anywhere that you go will think that you are coming from New York and not Washington. And that's a very interesting thing. And again, it can be done for security because this tunnel that's between you wherever you are in your coffee shop is secure. So none of the data that's going out into the Internet is coming from the coffee shop and it's not going through their network in an insecure way. So that's a good thing. Uh, but there is uh, Kevin had a question. He says, I have occasion to use unsecured Wi-Fi uh, once in a while while I'm out. One thing I wanted to know is using the network utility or another tool. How can I prove to myself that I am using the VPN uh, with some of these? It's very easy to see because they tell me that the VPN is running. But with others, not so obvious. How do I check? Honestly, the easiest way to check again, thinking back to my example is Let's see what the world thinks, uh, who the world thinks I am or where I am coming from. And there's a couple different ways to do this. But honestly, the easiest way is to go into Google. And I would do this before to get a control test before you set up the VPN and then after. So go to Google and search for the word IP or the two letters IP uh, without any space in the middle. And the first result you get will tell you what Google sees as your public IP address. So do that before you connect to the VPN and then connect to the VPN and then do this search again. 
And if the outside world is seeing you as something else, that address will change. And that's the, uh, that's, you know, probably the easiest way to do it. I, I'm sure there's other ways, John, and, and you're probably going to tell me one or two. Oh, or maybe boy. you're not. Oh, I'm going to tell you, brother. Go. So, number one, I would agree with you in essence that a VPN is a tunnel that makes you appear to be somewhere else from a network. Now, I don't know if the name implies it. It, it probably should, but the thing is, it also implies almost always that there's security involved. Right. And then not only are you connect, appearing to connect from somewhere else, whether it be for convenience or obfuscation. How do you like that? I like but, that. <laughs> but also, you're protecting your traffic. And again, I don't think it's it's necessary for a VPN, but it's almost always included because that's kind of the point. If you're Because if you're somewhere else, you probably want your traffic to be protected. Now, the absolute best way, though, there's a couple of... Um, caveats here so the first thing is that if you want to monitor the traffic on your computer to see if it's secure and that's how i took this question or i actually took it as a challenge dave the utility that i like is wireshark and that's an open source utility but it's based on x11 what is x11 you may ask and i'm going to tell you it's an older standard for displaying data that looks nice similar to uh, mac os 10 right um Funny thing is, Dave, and the, the utility that I would recommend for you to view your packets. So they have a tool here, which is called a Wireshark, which will let you view your network traffic. And I would say this is an this is a way where you can absolutely see what is happening at the lowest level on the network on your Mac and be confident that your traffic is either going to a different IP, as Dave suggested, what he said is perfectly uh, appropriate see if you're coming for another IP because that's kind of what a VPN is doing in part, not only securing your traffic, but redirecting it. Um, Wireshark will let you view this and you will see both the IP address that your machine has been assigned. And then typically, and I actually did this this afternoon, um, viewed the traffic. And what happens is basically once you employ a VPN or at least one, and now this is dovetailing both into what's in the chat room here and some other things, but so I used cloak so getcloak.com is a Mac and iDevice VPN that both um, redirects your traffic but secures it. And I was actually employing that on my Mac and using Wireshark to view the traffic. And once the VPN is installed, what you will see is your network traffic is going to their IP address and it's using the HTTPS protocol, which is secure. Uh, cool, huh? That's so I'm like, cool. Okay. Well, if my network traffic is going to this other IP address and the protocol it's being used, and that's why using something like Wireshark, which is uh, called a protocol analyzer, because it lets you see potentially every piece of data going between your Mac and the outside world, this lets you verify. You can actually look at the raw contents and, and in fact, see, well, yeah, it's secure because I can't understand a, a word of it. Right. Um, so Cloak is cool and... Wireshark is cool. Now, the only thing I ran into is that Mountain Lion, and, and we've seen this on Mac OS, and, and this is another occasion of this, is when I tried to run, well, first I tried to run an older version of Wireshark I had installed on my MacBook Pro, and, and I shouldn't have done that because it was an older, I think, 32-bit, maybe even Motorola version. And the machine complained. It's like, well, what are you trying to do? I can't run this. So I downloaded the latest version, but also when I tried to run it, it said, well, I'm Mountain Lion, dude. I don't have X11. Would you like to download it? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very similar to Java. So they're, sure. they're slicing out parts of the OS that used to be there by default. And potentially, I guess we're wasting space. Not a lot, but still. Uh, so this is another case. So once I said, yeah, they actually redirect you. So, so we will link to the Apple support article, but they actually redirect you to a open source project called XQuartz at macosforge.org. And once you download that, then you try to run Wireshark again. Uh, it'll work. The other thing I ran into is because I was running an older version that I think didn't have the right permissions or something. When I tried to run it um, after installing this X11 package, it said, um, yeah, the, there are no interfaces available for you to view. And I'm like, dude, I'm admin. Right, right. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> then I figured, oh, wait, the version that I have on my machine is, is old and decrepit, so I'm going to download the latest. I think it was either I had a 32-bit version or an older version, but I downloaded the latest Wireshark got this X11 thing and, uh, and again, verified visually that the, the, so Wireshark is awesome. The thing is it can be overwhelming. You want to be careful about what you look at, because if you look at everything that's being sent between your Mac and the sure. outside world, you go insane. So yeah, that's good stuff. I wanted to add that because no, it, that's good. it also touched on what mountain lion is doing, which, uh, you know, just a general OS trend. They're, they're kind of carving out these really kind of, you know, legacy things. Right. If you wanted it, you got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can go get it if you need it. That's right. Hey, you're sounding kind of Skypey, and I realize we're not on a UDP connection. We're on a TCP connection, so I'm going to call you right that. back. Yes. Yeah, all right. So hang on one second here. All right, and we're back. Uh, it turned out we needed to reboot John's Skype, and then uh, and then we got a nice, solid UDP connection. How are you doing, John? UDP? <laughs> you the man. Uh, no, UDP. <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's go. Uh, you know, th- th- there's this storm coming this week. Uh, somebody in the chat room suggested maybe we want to do a show that's a little longer because who knows what's going to happen next weekend. Uh, what with the way my power tends to, if it goes out, it stays out for uh, we get we get a nice long experience of the uh, of the power mm-hmm. being out. We don't just get a couple hours. So. Uh, so we'll do a couple more questions and we'll do cool stuff. We're not going that, that far, that uh, easy for me to see. Uh, but we'll do, we'll do a couple extra because there's some good questions here. Andreas writes, uh, let's see if I can find where this is. Um, I run time machine. Ba- he has several Macs. He says, I run time machine backups and super duper clones to a, USB drive that is connected to his airport express. And he says, I run these daily without any problems recently. However, I had a hard drive issue, which proved to be all right in the end, but it led me to do a test. Excellent. uh, To see if my backup system actually worked. This is great. I'm so happy uh, because he found a flaw. He says, what good is a backup system if it doesn't work? Well, when holding down option on rebooting my Mac, I get to the boot menu and there I am presented with my internal hard drive and uh, the mountain lion partition. Fine. But shouldn't I be presented with my super duper clone at this point as my WD uh, as is, you know, the hard drive in the airport extreme that it's connected to uh, is not connected directly to the Mac, but instead it is over the network. When I choose the network option on the bootable menu and then choose my Wi-Fi network, I am unable to log into it Uh and he's pretty sure he has the right password, although my guess is he probably didn't. Um, you can check your Wi-Fi password on your Mac in keychain access uh, as an aside. But he says, uh, 
I've also tried taking the hard drive from my airport extreme and plugging that directly into the ethernet port on my Mac because there's no USB port on the drive. Okay. So it's just truly a network drive uh, to see if that worked hitting option on startup presented me with the same screen as before with no luck. I was not handed the option to boot from the super duper clone on there either. What is going on? How do I do this? Okay. So here's the thing. Um, I'm sure your backups are all good, assuming the drive is fine, but you the only way you can boot from a super duper clone is if it is a cloned to another partition or drive cloning it. You're likely it sounds like cloning it to a uh, disk image, and that's a great way to archive off things, but you can't boot from a disk image. Uh, There is net boot. And you can actually boot from a disk image if you're running OS 10 server and hosting the file there. But uh, but in a general sense, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't boot from an image that's sitting on uh, a disk connected to your airport extreme or elsewhere on the network. It just it just just doesn't work. So, uh, yeah, you do not have a bootable backup in that situation. You have a time machine backup, which is incremental. You have your super duper clone, which is a kind of snapshot of what your drive looked like, but you have no way of booting from either one of those because they're sitting out there as sparse bundles Uh or, or disc images. You need to, if you want to boot, it has to be on a physical drive that you can connect to your Mac locally. um, And, and and it doesn't have to take up the whole drive. You can partition the drive if you want to do that. And that that's actually totally fine. So very good, very good question though, because you're right. You've got to test your backups to make sure that they work the way you think they're working. And excellent, Andreas, that you thought to test. I mean, I realize you had a problem that made you, you know, a little more aware, but it's a good thing, you know, and uh, and you took it to the next the next level. So any thoughts on this one, John, before we. Well, to me, honestly, it sucks. I, I agree. It would be great to and, be able to boot then, from, from the no, image. And that, and that they don't tell you. And now I think the key here, I, I think you may have touched on it, but. A disk image can be run through disutility using the restore image, and I believe that will take what's on an image and make it into potentially something that's bootable. Yeah, you can take a disk image and restore it to a physical drive and then boot from that. But you've got to get a you've got to have a way of getting at the disk image. Correct. Right. What what I guess I'm saying is that for for those that are relatively new to the whole Mac OS ecosphere, to me that's entirely not obvious because yeah. Apple advertises, hey, time machine, it's the greatest thing. It'll back up your stuff. Cool. Well, here's the thing, though. Whoops, if I want to boot for... The thing is, they kind of gloss over, well, what if you want to not only back up your data, which I think time machine does admirably, but what if you want to create a bootable version of what you're backing up? And that's where I think they... Well, why we got this question, why they skim over that. Right. And maybe they shouldn't as much. And it's probably in the manual and in the and stuff like that. But when it comes to it, you would it'd be swell if you could plug in a time machine into a Mac and it would boot from that backup. Right. Um, Yeah. Technically, you could do it. They have solved that. Well, yeah, they have solved that problem a different way. Time machine as it stands is an unbootable thing. It doesn't matter how you store it. Even if you store your time machine backup on a, you know, USB or firewire drive, even, you know, connected directly to your Mac, you're not going to be able to boot to it. The the time machine backups just are not created as bootable things. It's a, it's a whole different animal. So uh, the way Apple has solved this problem is with, is with internet uh, restore. 
right? So you can boot a Mac, a newer Mac and older Macs won't do this, but, but newer Macs, like probably the last two, maybe even three years, you can boot up and do an internet restore where you download the, you know, the operating system over the internet, you install the operating system on your Mac from that download and then as it restarts, it comes back up and says, hey, do you have a time machine backup that you want to restore from? And then you can restore. So there is this way, but it requires an Internet connection and, you know, all of that stuff. You're not doing it locally. But uh, but, you know, I think that's in Apple's mind, if you will, you know, give them a single hive mind. Uh, I think that's the solution to that problem. But it's not a perfect solution. But, it, it you know, it is it is better than it was two years ago when you couldn't even do that. So, yeah. Yep. All right. Dave had um, what I think is an awesome question. I don't know the answer, but uh, Dave says, quick question. What is the best way to convert data that I have on five and a half inch floppies (laughs) to CDs? And I think he meant five and a quarter inch floppies. Uh, He says, right now I have two floppies that have a bunch of data on them. And how do I get it off of there? Do you have an answer for this one, John? Yes, I do. Awesome. Well, the only answer I possibly have, but I have heard of five and a quarter inch drives that are USB that may work on a Mac. That's, uh-huh. that's really oh, that's cool. And I think there, there's still some, if you hit the eBay, I think you may find one. But I know there were people making both. I, I know I've seen three and a half inch drives because you remember those, but five and a quarter. Now, eight inch. No, that's forget it. Yeah, but I know I know in the dawn of Macdom, I have seen because that that was the big problem with with any. But that's only that's only half the battle. I mean, well, then it's interpreting the data you pull off of it. Yeah, that's a whole other. Right. I mean, what you know, what format? At least you've got the ones and zeros. But yeah, what are you going to do with them? Yeah. Well, you you may not even have the ones and zeros because you've got to have you've got to have a not only software that can read how the drive was, how the disk was formatted, but the drive has to be able to read how the disk was formatted. And I seem to remember back in the five and a quarter inch days that different drives would format in, 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 in certain ways and not necessarily in, in ways that, you know, if if you formatted on a, uh, on a, on a, uh, I was going to say a windows machine, but on a, on an IBM, on a PC, like if you formatted on an AT and then you tried to run it on your Apple IIe, I didn't think there was any way to get that data to read, you know, back and forth. And I think that was a function of the way the drive was built. You know, some were mm-hmm. single sided drives, some were double sided drives, you know, and, and single density, double density. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how you would get that. Maybe we'll leave that up as a geek challenge because it, it would require, it would actually require quite a bit of software to or, have all the options or quite not so much hardware. Assuming there's somebody out there, I got to assume, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a stretch. I got to assume at least one of our listeners. Now I'll admit Dave, I actually have an Apple Lisa, which if I got it, a memory board, or a Mac XL, I forget which it was okay. called, but I have a Mac Lisa. Now, the thing is, I did jettison when I moved uh, out of the last place I lived to this house. I basically jettisoned all of my Apple II stuff, which I shouldn't have, because if I didn't, then I would have the five and a quarter inch drive connected to my Apple II that I could offer you. That's true, and then you could, data. you could get that on the internet, 
And once you pull the data <laughs> off and how would, I don't know how you get that on the internet, that would take a little bit of doing, but um, maybe you no, could, the data file in a modem. I could then yeah. transmit it using like X modem or actually something even, even like just that. a serial cable. Oh no, your Mac doesn't have a serial port. Um, yeah. Oh, it has a USB. There are USB to serial converters. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I've done yeah. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I work, uh, actually I work, you know, now in an environment where we're dealing with, yeah, legacy. We'll call it legacy. That's the nice word for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's just an, it's it an nice interesting word. conundrum. I mean, it's like, you know, you try but to I, solve I it. I would check there. There are, if you're near a major city, they're probably, hopefully, maybe still and maybe an Apple II user group. There's still a few of them out there, Dave, I think. Just like the people oh. that drive... Old fifties or sixties cars. There are still people that are actively using Apple twos to do real work. Oh, if you want to, and if you want to hang with these people and this is, this is actually a trade show I would love to go to someday. Um, it's Kansas fest and it happens, uh, usually in the summer, July ish. Uh, and it's a bunch of Apple two users that get together and, and hang out for a couple of days and, and do all sorts of crazy stuff. So yeah, like what we're talking about, like exactly what we're exactly what we're talking about. In fact, if you showed up at Kansas fest, assuming your files were created on an Apple two, you could almost guaranteed get that data onto something that your Mac could then read. But if they were created on an IBM, well, that's a different story. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Uh, let's see. So we did Dave. Uh, let's do a couple of cool things. Cool stuff found. And uh, and then maybe we'll maybe we'll call it a show. Do you have any cool stuff found to add uh, add this week, John? I or, do. I got one from go. Lynn Falk, who uh, uh, follows the show. Sure. Um. And actually retweeted a tip here, which actually I was noticing this, Dave. I'd, I'd wonder if either of you guys noticed this, but it was a tip. How to fix a problem with an unresponsive or sluggish home button. Now, I don't know if I was imagining things. I mean, I've had this phone for maybe one, one and a half years, but all of a sudden, as of late, maybe it's iOS 6. It, I almost thought it was broken, but the thing was, if I press it eventually, but, but it's just like, you know, a couple of milliseconds off where it just doesn't feel right. Now, which what what is this that happens? What button? When you click on the home button, yeah. so the 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 main button on your phone, yes, yeah, something doesn't happen immediately. It, it takes the, yeah. There's a little delay, right? Right. Now, is it because the button's worn out or the software is unhappy? It it's depends. The, well, what does the button feel well, like? Is it mushy? Yeah, I mean, I have a... Well, no, I, I feel nothing physically different with the button. But anyway, so so basically, I got a tip here. We'll, we'll link to it. But it basically, somebody saying, hey, you know, if you got a problem with your a sluggish, uh, what you think is a sluggish home button, here's what you do. You launch a Apple default app. Hold the power button in on the top edge until you see slide off power, then let go. And then hold down the home button again. And apparently, clear something out. I don't know. I just thought I mentioned it because I think I tried it and it seemed to make a difference. I don't know. But the thing is, again, all of a sudden I noticed a, a notable sluggishness in the responsiveness of the home button on my device. And I'm not running. I mean, a lot of times I'm not running tons of apps. I would expect that kind of behavior if maybe I was running, you know, 20, 30 apps hanging in the background, though I try to kill them off whenever I can. But it just seemed weird. Now, maybe it was, it was it's like psychosomatic here is that, you know, <laughs> Right. 
I perceived a problem and think I solved it. Now everything's great, but well, I, don't know, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed well, the problem. I've got a Either got physically a really geeky or kludgy uh, home button. So that's, I'm going to bring that to her attention and see if that fixes I, it. Now, what you're talking about, John, where you you launch an app and then you do the the you know the the power button at the top until the thing comes up, and then holding down the home button until you get back to the home screen. All that's doing is force quitting that frontmost app. Uh, because no. there is no other way to force quit a frontmost app. Um, you can force quit a background apps by by you know holding oh. down and, and and getting stuff. But yeah. if you are in an app that has taken control of your iPhone, there's and and hitting the home button to get out of it doesn't work. The, there you have no solution except that. So that's the way to quit the frontmost app, and that's all that does. So unless the app that you happened to choose to quit was the one that was running in the background mm. and causing your home button, I find that pretty suspect. But it is a good tip if you want to know how to quit the frontmost app. Now you know. Now you know, and you there use you that go. that step. <laughs> yeah. Well, I sent you the link, but eh. all right. Well, actually, so several people in the chat room are saying you know that they've seen uh, solution. You know that 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 it, it has solved that problem. So that, Hey, it great. That's, you know, that's good stuff. That's it can't good. hurt. And right. it made no, me it think doesn't the hurt. problem was solved. So. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's good. That's good. What, what's your imaginary tip? Dave? Uh, yeah, wait, am I supposed to have imaginary tips here? Uh, real. Okay. Real or imaginary. They're, they're, they're on different axes, but, yeah. All right. I will go to uh, I will go to Simon here because this is actually a cool thing. He says, hey, guys, did you know that you can share reminder lists uh, from OS 10 or iCloud.com, but not from iOS? If you hover over a list in the list of lists on the left, a share icon appears. Click on it and away you go. It's just like sharing a calendar, but you can share reminder lists. Yeah. In fact, Corey Emdick and I have a shared reminder list of um of bugs and, and feature enhancements and, and such for the Mac geek app. And so we, we have it shared and if we tick one thing off, it goes away and you know, and it goes away for both of us. So yeah, it's a cool thing or I can put stuff on the list and he sees it. So yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. So that's, uh, that's a good one. That's one of those things that, you know, it uh, it's there and we use it and yet we forget to tell you about it. So that's good. You have anything else to uh, to mention here, John? Nope. All right, Scott uh, has one. He says something you might want to mention in an upcoming show is that Apple is recalling many, but not all, of the one terabyte Seagate hard drives that were installed in iMacs, sold from October '09 through July of 2011, and they have a link. Um, that we will put in the show notes uh, and you plug in your serial number there and it will tell you if the iMac that you have is in, is affected by this. And I think they, they, they're doing it as an extended warranty, um, you know, kind of thing. So you, you don't need, you don't need warranty. It's an, it'll, it's a out of warranty repair that's covered. So. Oh, you're on those out of warranty repairs. Anybody with a MacBook with the cracked top around your keyboard. That's an out-of-warranty repair covered by Mac. Is that? Yeah. Ah, yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. I like that. Um, You know, one thing that uh, I said we would talk about a little bit 
is uh I mentioned it when I was up in Maine this summer. My uncle has uh he has a situation where he wants to get Wi-Fi from one house to another. He wants to get internet access from one house to another. He has a cottage uh that's pretty close, certainly within walking distance uh of his main house, but it is across the street. So running any sort of cable is not gonna happen. So what he did was he did long haul Wi-Fi and and so he has uh, a couple of he just uses some D-Link routers. He likes to do everything. John, you would love this guy. Um, he, he likes to make sure he does everything with the, the least expensive hardware that he possibly can. But but he wants it to work. He's an engineer. He, you know, he's, he's not doing anything half baked, uh, certainly. But uh, but, you know, he, he, he has no reason to spend extra money on it. Um, so. Uh, he has a couple of D-Link routers with the stock firmware that he puts in uh, WDS mode. So wire, you know, uh, uh, distributed wireless network mode. So this is where we always say it doesn't work. This is where it actually works. And the reason uh, that it works is, is, is well, well, we'll get to. He says he chose these, these D-Link routers because they have high wireless power output and they were cheap. He says, so he said, most routers don't tell you the power these do. He says, so I got them. And then he said for the antennas, he's using these radio labs, 2.4 gigahertz backfire antennas, and they're 14 dB gain passive dishes. They look like small metal garbage can lids. And he says, again, they didn't cost him very much. He says he chose the, the 14 dB gain because higher gain has a tighter beam, which means it's harder to aim. And that's very important, you know, because he's trying to like blast through the trees and stuff. He says other people have used old satellite dishes they picked up at the dump. Uh, he says, and you can you know find instructions for that stuff on the web. So what he does is he has these routers at either end and then these routers allow an external antenna to be plugged in. So that's obviously important. And then he has these two little dish antennas that replace the antennas that come on your wireless routers are omnidirectional uh, antennas. They're, you know, essentially meant to go in all directions. Well, what he's doing is taking the signal from those and aiming them, uh, focusing it down into a much tighter beam. And he's able to get this, this connection to go. It's probably, I don't know. It's probably about 500 feet. Um, and he gets, he gets plenty of speed. He's getting like, uh, he's using G 802.11 G because his routers don't support N and, and his connections fast enough for him. And so he doesn't want to spend money on routers that, uh, that he doesn't need. And he um, and I think he's getting, you know, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 megabits a second, which was fine to share his Internet connection and, you know, all of that. Wow. Stuff. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty. It was a pretty awesome setup. But, you know, it does bring up a good general point, Dave, in that. Yeah. When I heard this, I, I kind of sensed where you were going. But as the frequency of a RF signal increases, the the antenna required to pick it up gets shorter. Makes sense. Yeah. And when you think about this, if, if you've done any radio work, and I know you guys have, but so shortwave, shortwave radios, if you ever use a shortwave radio, the wavelength in that the, the distance that it takes for the wave to oscillate from positive to negative, which transmits information, can be hundreds of feet. But when you get into the high frequencies, like the gigahertz we're talking about, it gets really tiny. So the thing is, the antenna is tiny. And sometimes what they do, as we found out here, is that in order to get a signal at a high frequency to go where you want it to go, you need a focuser or a dish. And you've seen this. I mean, you've seen satellite dishes. Right. That's what they're doing. Because if they didn't have the big 
things surrounding the antenna, the signal would fly all over the place. This helps focus it. So that's the one issue with the higher frequency things like Wi-Fi is that there are high frequencies so that an antenna that's not focused tends to just, again, throw the data all over the place. But if you get a dish like this, and that, that was the thing. Well, you've also heard about this, Dave, probably, or if you haven't, and I'll, I'll try to find a relevant article, but Pringles cans, people notice they're, they're just about the right shape to help focus a 2.4 gigahertz right. or in that area signal. And it sounds like that's kind of what these are doing, but they're, they're professional. They're using an actual focused little dish, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I love it because otherwise uh, the other solution I would have had would be to drill underground, you know, well, he'd have so to you go under, the, permit. under the yeah. road. Yeah. Well, what I told him well, was, that's I what said, I'm saying is how could right. you avoid this? You know, <laughs> how could you avoid this, uh, you know, bureaucratic obstacle? Well, the, 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 so two, two reasons. Number one, his brother, uh, who's also my uncle, obviously, because that's how that works, um, is happens to be the uh, the 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 first selectman of, of the town. So so he might so he be, could make things happen. He, he could. He, but he's he actually takes his job uh, very seriously and probably would would <laughs> would treat family uh, much tighter than than he might even even treat, you know, other people, other folks. But it's good. I mean, it you know, he's not a jerk about it, but, he you know, he wants to do the right thing for the town. Um, but uh, but what I did tell. Uh, the uncle that wants to do this, not the guy who's first selectman, as I said, you know, eventually they're going to need to pave that road and chances are they're going to have to do dig it up and, and lay gravel and then let it sit overnight and then come back the next day and pave it. And I said, that's the night you get out there with your direct burial cable and you lay like five of them between <laughs> here and there. And uh, and you cover them up as best you can, one and you let them one will survive. One at least one will survive, and he's like, actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so so I think there's a plan in the works that's just sort of waiting until uh, the, the town does this. But that's uh, you know this is how we think here. That's what we. Uh, the next time you're going to hear this, folks, is in a courtroom. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to use a conduit. Yeah, you could do a. Con- I'm sure he would do conduit because <laughs> that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. That would be handy because then you yeah. run whatever you want back and forth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, he also he years ago. This was the same uncle that before he could get um, cable modem access to his uh, to his house. He had what what I would call long haul Wi-Fi. That was his ISP, and he had an, a, a, a dish antenna up on top of his house that aimed at you know somebody else that that was relaying a Wi-Fi signal to him that was like a mile and a half away. Nice. And uh, it was great until one of his trees grew, and then his connection went out one spring, and he had to go out and like start cutting branches and stuff. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, he had that for a long time. And uh, and perhaps it's my it's actually his son that's on the other side of the state here that has trouble with his thing. So he was looking for long haul Wi Fi too. So. Hey, I got another quick stu- quick cool stuff now. Yeah, go, so, yeah, go uh, ahead. Sorry, Pete. Splash Top. If uh, you want to use uh, your desktop or laptop from your iPad anywhere, use Splash Top. It has a streamer client and a streamer server that mounts on your uh, laptop. The client is obviously on your iPad. Uh, I think it's nine ninety five a year to use it outside of your home. If you're on the same network, no problem. If you want to leave your Wi-Fi network, use it from anywhere in the world, you can uh, pay nine ninety five a year and do it. If anyone has any free solutions for uh, doing the uh, VNC thing back into your laptop from your iPad, I'd like to hear about it because I'm a pilot. Got to hear the 
That's right, pilot salary, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any, uh, anything else, any other uh, cool stuff found before we wrap this one up? I think we're good. Batten down the hatches, man. It's time to batten down the hatches. That's right. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me get back to here. Oh, well, the one thing we didn't go through was how you can get in touch with us. We've had all these great people uh, listening to the show, asking questions, and uh, sending in cool stuff found. And How'd they do that? That's right. Those people are no different than you. They just know how to do this. And we're going to change that so that you're all the same. Everybody's equal. And uh, some are more equal than others. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Crash, sorry that's correct. That. No. Uh, so you can email us at feedback at macgeekab.com. Anybody? Feedback at macgeekab.com. Wait, wait. Did Pete say feedback at macgeekab.com? I think so. There it is. That's right. Uh, and then, of course, if you have joined Premium or are, are a Premium member, you can use Premium at macgeekab.com. And, uh, and those questions do get prioritized. We do really try to answer everything, but, uh, but, but the speed at which things get answered uh, is definitely different. For uh, for premium, I told you some were more equal than others. Some were more equal <laughs> Thank than you, others. That's right. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, you can also call us at two zero six 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 Geek, which John is forty three thirty five. You can also uh, we're on the Twitters. Believe it or not, so I am John Apron. He is Dave Hamilton. He is Pilot Pete. The show is Mac Geek Ab. The publication is Mac Observer. That's right. And then, of course, you can uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash MacGeekab. If you like us there, using and my, I'm using the Facebook term of like, uh, you will then see in your Facebook stream when we post uh, the time for the live stream each week. And, of course, the live stream you'll always find at MacGeekab.com slash stream. The chat room is right there as well as the stream. But you... Uh, if, if, if we, we do sometimes change the time, it is like I said, either at night or or in the morning, Eastern time, and so that's a good place to find <laughs> out when. But if you happen, to, what we try to do, if you happen to join the stream at any point in time, so if you just go there right now, and we don't happen to be recording, and and chances are we aren't because that's just the law of averages. Uh, we post in the uh, stream as the subject or the the title of the chat room when the next show is going to be recorded so you can see it right there uh, for yourself. So I think that's it, right, John? We're, uh, we're ready to ready to roll this one out? Pretty much to all my, uh, both you, Dave, and Pete and uh, everybody in New England or up here. Bend down. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. please pay attention to your local authorities. Well, yeah, I'm good luck. Not, good luck, John. I know you're in a <laughs> in an increasingly uh, encouraged to evacuate zone. Well, so. they came to my door and gave me a piece of paper saying, yes, well, you may want to think about uh, going away. That's soon. a big deal, man. Yeah, well, they do the same thing here, except they want you to vote for somebody in New Hampshire. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's far more important around here than the, the storm. It's like, I, you know what I was thinking is, I wonder what would happen 
if this thing hit a little bit later or the, the damage is so big that significant areas of the country are still without power yeah. and resources on election day. It could easily happen. And it last, could, last year, it was about eight you, ten days before some people got their power back. Could be very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different... It has nothing to do with Dave, this show. It's, but. It's, it's almost like somebody may have, in a, in a smoke-filled room, planned this. Found a way to do this. Let's <laughs> disrupt the election this. by causing a let weather my, Let me get disaster. my tinfoil hat, and then we are good to go. We're going to do a get whole it, other podcast and, right and now. And you strap that on, and you screw it in, and yes... Yeah. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, yeah, it's interesting. All right. I can't be the only one that thought this. Oh, Come no, on. of course not. Oh, no, you know me. <laughs> I love to wear my tinfoil hat. So, All right. Uh, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators show, uh, from We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show and all of our episodes to AAC for you. We would like to thank Cashfly for all of the bandwidth. Of course, the podcast marketplace includes... BB Edit from Barebones Software. PDF Pen for iPhone, Mac, and iPad from Smile. And, of course, Gazelle. Make sure you uh, visit them, especially if you're thinking about getting or have ordered a new iPad Mini and it's replacing something. Go check it out. You might be able to get you good money. Be safe out there. Take care of yourself. And don't get caught. Made up.